Thank you, Jacob. It's good to be with you this morning. Turning your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And be honest, did you plan on being at first service, but you ended up at second? I told first service that um, I have a visceral response to uh, spring forward, and those who are in the ministry know this. So for 26 years, I lived in a state that didn't have daylight savings time. It's quite nice, actually, and worked out perfectly fine. And then for the last 33 years, I've lived in states that have it. And because 28 of those 33 years I've been in the ministry, it's physically affected me every Sunday. You know, it couldn't be Friday at 4 o'clock, right, in the afternoon, then you spring forward, everybody goes home early. So uh, anyway, I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad that you uh, came, even though it's snowing and all of that. So we're going to enjoy our time and worship in the Word. So look there, if you would, First Timothy chapter 3, guidelines for public worship is our studies. We work verse by verse through the pastoral epistles. In Mark chapter 10 and verse uh, 43, Jesus is speaking and he says, whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In J.I. Packer's book, Your Father Loves You, he talks about some of what we looked at last week as we began to look at these remarkable words that have been transliterated into an office called deacon. Servant, he says, in our English New Testament usually represents the Greek word diakonos or, or minister. Sometimes it's translated doulos or bondslave. And this is strictly accurate, he says, for doulos and diakonos are synonyms. Both words denote a man who is not at his own disposal, but is his master's purchased property. Bought to serve his master's needs, to be at his beck and call every moment. The sole business of that position is to do as he's told. Christian service, therefore, means first and foremost living out a servant's relationship with a Savior. And it's interesting that Paul had a lot to say about that. First Corinthians six nineteen, he makes that relationship very clear. He says, do you not know, this is common knowledge, it's common knowledge, he says, do you not know this, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you're not your own, for you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Christian service is first and foremost living out a servant's relationship with the Savior. So the question is, Packer continues, what work does Christ set his servants to do? The way that they serve him, he tells them, is by becoming the slaves of their fellow servants and being willing to do literally anything, however costly, irksome, or undignified, in order to help them. This is what serving means, as he himself showed at the Last Supper when he played the servant's part and washed their feet and served them a meal. So he goes on and says, so when this New Testament speaks of ministering to the saints, it means primarily devoting time, trouble, and substance to giving them all the practical help possible. The essence of Christian service then is loyalty to the king expressing itself in the care for his servants. And only, he says, the Holy Spirit can create in us the kind of love towards our Savior that will overflow in imaginative sympathy and practical helpfulness towards his people, end quote. That's pretty serious, isn't it? captures precisely the, the essence of the words and their job. 
As we think about Packers' words, we're going to continue today in our study through the first of the pastoral epistles, which is where we are verse by verse in our studies today together. First Timothy, which is an instruction to a young pastor on how things are to be done in the church. And over the last month, we have been looking at God's requirements for leadership. And last week, we started a really remarkable look at the word deacon and the office of deacon. And we saw last week that when uh, we are, and we're reminded today, certainly, the original sense of those terms, doulos and diakonos, had to do with serving. Very general, any kind of service would be in mind. But in particular, we are reminded by Packer, every believer's primary job in serving the king is in serving the king's servants by devoting time and trouble and substance to giving them all the practical help overflowing in any kind of imaginative, helpful service for life. And what's unique in our text, then, in this remarkable word, which is used in the official sense, as we saw last time, it's been transliterated by New Testament translators. And Paul obviously is directing his comments to an official office. And so translators took the word and gave it English letters. And as we read our passage, it's now referring to a group of chosen or select people. And as I asked you last time, what do you think that the primary qualification was in each of these people to even be considered to fill the official office with everything we just got through looking at. Above and beyond anything else, it had to be someone who understood that their job as a servant was to serve their master by serving those who serve their master. And they had to understand that beyond all other things. That had to be the example they lived out. They're servants. They're living examples of what the word doulos or diakonos looks like, humble, gracious service. Now look, if you would, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we'll pick up in verse 8, and we'll read together all the way down through verse 15. It starts this way, deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, verse 9. But holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, verse 10, these men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Verse 11, women like, must, must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things, verse 12. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. Verse 13, for those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Stop right there. The examples of service, of course, as we looked at them last week, alluded to an official office, and we looked at many samplings, very broad. If you missed that, I would encourage you to go back and catch that. But uh, we also saw from this very basic foundational biblical understanding of the New Testament office of deacon that really filters out almost every example and experience you may have had or perhaps supposed or thought you understood about the office of deacon. I asked you that at the beginning of last time together, what your experience has been. Many churches have a number of different things that they do with deacons, and what we just read probably filters out 98% of them. And now here in this section, we're going to deal with the matter of the qualifications of those who serve in this official office of deacon. Because just like the office of elder, this section is not written in a vacuum. Obviously, there were some problems there in Ephesus, so the office had to be defined to make sure that those who served did so with the qualifications that the Lord requires of the office. 
They are officially deacons, not because of that they're doing all the work or that they do all the service, but because they are models of the proper kind of service for everyone. And that's why we read deacons likewise in verse 8. Uh, just like the elders we just got through talking about, in like manner, although a deacon's function is distinct from that of an elder, it's not distinct from the fact that they're a model. And the qualifications are basically the same. They're a model of service. Uh, they're a model of personal character in their private lives, in their home life, and family, and in their testimony to a watching world. And there's no lessening of the spiritual standard. They serve a unique position in the church, and so the standards are very similar. They are to be equally godly men. And the message of what a deacon is to be, beloved, is a message of what you and I are to be because there's that model for us, what it looks like to serve. And I've mentioned this to you over and over as we've gone through the qualifications of elder and, that, and now that we get to deacon, there is one godly standard in the church. It's not a godly standard for those who serve the church and then everyone else. And as I've mentioned that to you, I've also given you some cross-references and passages to help you see that the very standards that uh, an elder has to be a non-negotiable about are the very standards that everyone else is required to live up to, too. And we're going to see the very same thing as we get into this office of deacon. So look at verse 8, if you would. We looked at this last time. There are two verses, and we were able to mark some qualification principles from these verses on deacon leadership. If you look at verse 8, Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain. First of all, we saw that they must be men of dignity. That's the adjective semnos. It's where we get our English word seminal, where someone is an authority. Here it is, the idea to hold the office of deacon, you must be one who could be held as an example, if you will, of seriousness in spiritual issues. And so on the other side, they're not going to be consumed with themselves and with the world. They put kingdom things first and they give them the importance that they deserve, befitting behavior that's implied dignity and respect that people can see and they can model. They have a respectability people are going to pick up on. Someone can watch their life and the way they selflessly serve, and those habits strongly then influence other people. And it's a beautiful adjective and a very important designation, and seriousness here, market, allows them to see the needs of the congregation and meet them as an example to others. You can't be a flippant kind of guy, kind of guy who's not serious about serious things, and serve as a deacon because you're going to miss the actual needs that are in the church. You have to be looking around and seeing what's needed. And as I mentioned last week, we didn't get to it last time, there's a place in the book of Acts where this character trait becomes very clear. I want to look at it quickly. It's found in Acts chapter 6, and I want you to turn there if you would. Hold your finger here in 1 Timothy 3, turn to Acts 6, and we're going to read this passage. This is a passage people will often say, hey, this is the beginning of deacons. And we're going to see that it's not actually that, but we're going to see some very important character traits here uh, that can help us understand some of the service that was going on in the early church. And so it's instructional for us there, and it'll help us understand and clarify then the office of deacon. But Acts chapter 6, verse 1, let's read it, and we can comment on it just briefly. Now, at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. Verse 2. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Verse 3. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. Verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Verse 5, 
The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. Verse 6, and these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. Let's stop right there. Now, it's very easy to see a significant comparison to the official office. There was a definite need in the church, and there's a servant type of need, and, and there were some requirements fulfilling this temporary situation. So in that respect, it's very similar and parallel to what we've been looking at. The church is brand new. It's growing very rapidly in Jerusalem as a result of the gospel spreading very quickly after Pentecost. And we've looked at this before, but there were believers from every ethnic group and every language group there during that time. And there were people who stayed in Jerusalem because after becoming a believer in Messiah, they would have been shunned by the unredeemed Jewish community, so they had no job to go home to, and so they stayed. Or perhaps they were in Jerusalem, came to faith, and been shunned. They have no job, and now they're in need. And people who were Jerusalem natives who are now jobless and all of that. And there were people who traveled uh, there who were not Jews uh, and came to faith and stayed. And so there's this big need, which is why the churches around Jerusalem, even as far away as Corinth and Rome, were called upon by the Apostle Paul and others. And you remember this because we've looked at it, to take up collections over the next several years. What were they for? They were to take care of the Jerusalem church because there's a big need going on there. And so we get to see the beginning of some logistical opportunities that the early church faced. And in this particular situation, the church was dealing with, as we pointed out, Jews who lived in the land of Palestine and those who had lived out in the Greek world, and they were all together in one place, and this is a huge group, and there's a problem, and people are murmuring. In verse 1, it says this, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily service of food. So a problem is noticed by the complaining of the people. And I, just as a side note, I thought it was comforting to know that they even did that in the early church, that as soon as you re recognize there was a problem, it was because people were complaining about it and not solving it. And so that's encouraging. And, and complaining was about the Jews from the outside of Palestine were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. Now, the church is trying to meet the needs of all these widows that had become believers. And what's relevant about this passage is that we're going to see instruction to the church in Ephesus in 1, Corinthians, or 1 Timothy chapter 5 about this very issue, how the church is to manage the support of widows. So it's still relevant for today. It was relevant for the church in Ephesus, and it's very important here. And obviously, there's some kind of problem. So they have this big need, and supporting the poor is not a new issue to God's people. And the Old Testament has a lot to say about that, and we won't go into that today. Just that there was a tithe, and you know this because we've talked about it, specifically designated to take care of the poor. And so it's not a new thing to take care of those who have need, but obviously they have a big responsibility, and they have an ongoing complaint from one group about another group. So how are they going to fix it? Now look at verse 2. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Verse 3, therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. So the apostles are taking care of this very large church, very unwieldy, no doubt, and no one has any experience here, and everyone's a brand new convert. And so the apostles are discipling, and they're teaching, and they're not able to figure out what the actual problem is, and how to fix it, and bring fairness, if it's absent, in this matter of food distribution to the poor. And so here's where we see the beginning of a solution. What happens? Well, they selected, the apostles told the church, select from among you seven men of good reputation, 
full of the spirit and of wisdom whom we may put in charge of this task. So here we have a series of qualifications. So it's not just anyone who can do it. Even in this specific task, there's going to be some qualifications for those who are going to serve in this official position, even though it's probably just temporary. And the first one is a good reputation. And that's the same requirement that we saw of an elder back in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 7. He also has to be of a good reputation. Now, obviously, they're going to have to be men that people speak well of. They have to be trustworthy. They're going to have to be beyond reproach. They're going to have money to handle and other resources. People have to know that they're reliable. They have to already have established that pattern of life beforehand so they can be nominated. Second one is full of the Spirit and wisdom. They're going to need the Holy Spirit to be able to have discernment and know what the real problem is and who and what is creating it. And believe me, brethren, in the church still, in the modern church, you're going to have to have the Holy Spirit to help you figure out why you have a problem and who's causing it and what you're going to do about it. The Holy Spirit gives you that wisdom. And so he has, this man has to be full of the Spirit and have to have wisdom because they have to determine the best course of action. And we could go on, and I don't want to spend too much time here, so we should just point out this is not an official office named here. They're not using, it's just a special task, just one. And they don't use the word deacon, and the word deacon and serve and minister apply to the food and the tables and the apostles. That's where that word is used. So these men are not called deacons. We don't have any repeat of choosing seven people anywhere else in the New Testament. And you could make an argument, really, that these guys were appointed to fit the office of elder as much as they fit the office of deacon. Especially if you look at a few of the names. You have Stephen. And you have Philip, and apostles prayed and laid hands on them. And Stephen and Philip both ended up being powerful preachers and evangelists. And, and we have Nicholas there, and he may have been as well. And he also may be the one being referred to in, as we look in Revelation and the church's Ephesus and the Nicolaitans and those who held to that teaching. So we don't know that for sure, but we know that these guys had ministry. But whatever happened later, Obviously, these seven guys figured out what the problem was because Acts chapter 6 and verse 7 tells us, look there, the word of God kept on spreading and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. So here's the thing. They put the right men in the right spots who had the right qualifications and that's always good for the church. The right men in the right spots, multiplying them out with the right qualifications is always beneficial to the church. And Stephen, verse 8, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. And remember, this is a transitory time in Acts. This is not the model for the modern-day church. What we see then is we get the epistles, we see what the church is supposed to do. Here, the church is being established. There are still sign gifts going on. Why? To verify the speaker, to verify the message. That's what a sign is, and this is going on. And perhaps the other guys did similar things. We know Philip certainly did. And it may be well be that the other five were involved in such a ministry also. So you can see, though, it'd be pretty tough to point to these eight verses and say this was part of, a, of the establishment of being a deacon. We can see some parallels there. What we really see is qualifications for any kind of leadership in the church have to be well established, and men have to meet those qualifications. The apostles are still leading the church, and they multiplied out godly men, and that's always good for the church. And as I mentioned for you, to you a couple of weeks ago, pray that God would continue to multiply godly men. Now, we also saw, look back now, you can flip back, verse 8 of 1 Timothy 3. So, many of you asked this question, and this has been a question numerous times about, is that the start of deacons? It's not, but you can see the parallel. So, we, we dealt with that. Now, look at verse 8, and we'll go back to our passage and do some review, and then we'll jump into our new stuff. Verse 8 says, deacons likewise must be men of dignity. We dealt with that. Not 
double-tongued. That was the second qualification for those who serve in this official office. They have to be the kind of people who know how to speak, when they should speak, when they should not speak, and to speak with integrity whenever they did speak. They had to know that. So it had to be part of the original qualification. They can't be someone who says one thing to one person and another thing to another. That's what it means to be double-tongued. Two words is the literal translation of that. The idea here is integrity of speech, not saying two different things to two different people. This defines gossip. That defines slander, a busybody, repeating things that shouldn't be repeated. That person's a manipulator. And this is the only place this word appears in the New Testament. And a lot of people do this. A lot of people speak two things, one to one, one to another. A lot of people gossip. But a deacon who is an example of service cannot. In fact, there isn't any service he can do that's going to counteract the huge spiritual deficit that's created by being double-tongued. There's always a high premium on verbal honesty and integrity among spiritual leaders. Speak faithfully, righteously, honestly, uprightly. That's very, very important and a requirement before they're put in that office. Look again at verse 8. Deacons likewise, men of dignity, we dealt with that. Nope, double-tongued. And here's another one, addicted to much wine. Number three, a deacon is to be the kind of person who does not allow the draw of drink to influence his life. Addicted to his present active participle. It's a compound, as were the other character traits that dealt with alcohol. This is pros, echo. So pros is unto or with, and then echo is in need of or possession of. So to occupy yourself with it. And the present active nature of the participle is just that this is the habit of his life. Habitually, he is known as a person who's not occupied with wine. And that's where we finished up last time. Now, let's back at our passage, and we'll pick up right there. Look at verses 8 and 9. Deacons... Likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued, addicted to much wine. Here's the next one, fond or fond of sordid gain. Now, fond of sordid gain is the compound Greek adjective, which indicates baseness and then gain or, or a base desire to prosper. It's modeling your life on the things you can accumulate. It's not indicating that a person can't be wealthy. Or that they must be poor. It has nothing to do with either of those things. What it does is, it answers the question posed from verse 3 when we were talking about the qualifications of an elder. For the office of an elder, the qualification from verse 3 was phrased this way. Free from the love of money. One compound adjective in the Greek um, that has to do with being no friend of silver. Aphilos aguros. And uh, literally, the question is, does he love money? That's the question you had to ask if the elder does. Does the elder love money? And the answer had to be that the elder or overseer had to exhibit a life that shows his attention is not fixed on monetary reward. And so in order to do that, we said he had to wage an unceasing battle to keep material things in their proper place. The qualified elder must do that. And what we see here now, we can look at another passage in 1 Peter 5, 1. What we're going to see when it, this is a requirement of the deacon, not fond of sordid gain, we're going to see in 1 Peter 5, Peter talks to elders and he uses the exact same word. So it's not unusual for this to be the case. It's similar requirements for both. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that's to be revealed. What do we do, Peter? Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not, here it is, for sordid gain, but with eagerness. So the exact same qualification for the elder is the one that's required for the deacon. 
And for the office of deacon, not implied, not double-tongued, not controlled by the desire to partake of alcohol, and here, not in love with money. That's the idea. So it answers that question. Does he love money? The answer is no. So the qualification, the deacon is to be the kind of person who can't be fond or greedy or literally, here it is, have a base attitude towards that which is driven by what he can get, be, do, or achieve. And beloved, I would, I would just tell you this, that in many churches, that is precisely who's put in the office of deacon. They're put there because they're wealthy, or they're really good at doing things, or they have a lot of good ideas, and we haven't even sounded the depths of any of the requirements actually that should be in place in order to qualify him to be there. And we've elevated the ones, some of the ones we've said particularly are not to be the case. So this must have been some of the problem at Ephesus, because again, this letter that Timothy's reading is not in a vacuum. So obviously, he's an example of nobleness and honor that people will aspire to, and he can't serve or be driven by the love of things. That's the disqualification. And so that's going to take a hard look by those who are thinking about putting him in that place to have some insight to know if that's true or not. And if that's the example that must be upheld, guess what that means for you? That's precisely the same thing. Do we really think that the Lord has a less desire for his people to not be consumed by the base things of the world than he does for those who lead the church? Well, we can be pretty sure about that because Jesus teaches about those kinds of things in Luke chapter 12 and verse 30. He's talking about material things, and this is, not, this is to everyone, not just those who lead the church. And he says, for all these things, the nations of the world eagerly seek. So what's the difference between you and the world? But your father knows you need these things. But seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. The Lord will take care of what you need. But it shouldn't consume you to be after the base desire to accumulate them for yourself because that's what the world does, the unredeemed people of the world. Do not be afraid, little flock. So don't worry that that's not consuming you anymore. Why? Because your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. What he has chosen to give you far exceeds anything you're going to accumulate for yourself anyway. Sell your possessions and give to charity. How, why do you do that? Well, that's going to make sure that you are not consumed by those things, see? Those things have not consumed you and own you. They don't, you, dis, you can dispose of them at your desire. Make yourself money belts that don't wear out. What's the implication? Accumulating things and being about the desire to accumulate things creates a money belt that will wear out. And it betrays that you have the same attitude as the world. An unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near or moth destroys for where your treasure is, here it is, there your heart will be also. So here's the issue. It's not saying that you don't work hard at your business. It isn't saying that you shouldn't work hard for your employer. You should because that, ordained, that, that uh, makes the gospel look good. It's not saying that you shouldn't supply for your family. You should work hard at your business. It's not saying any of those things. What is it saying? Where is your heart? That's all the qualifications for those who lead the church and for the people who are in the church all have to do with where the heart of the individual really is. Where's the heart of the leader? Then that's the question as we look at this one for deacons. Paul of himself, using the same word gain in Philippians 1.21, look at how he, he puts it. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Is that base gain? It is not. In fact, Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is the greatest gain. Paul's ultimate prospering was to be with Christ. He says, that's better for me, but it's far better, he says, for me to be with you 
for you. Later to the church of Philippi, he said in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as lost for the sake of Christ. Whatever it was that I gained before, whatever the education was, whatever the prestige was, whatever, the, whatever level that he had gained in the eyes of people, he counted them as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, he says, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, here it is, our word again, I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own, derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That's gain, that's gain. What's gain? This. And the other things that consume me, I count it as loss for Christ. That I may know Him, and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His suffering, being conformed to His death in order that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. For the official office, for the deacon, this is a non-negotiable. You can't be consumed with what you're trying to accumulate to yourself or who you're trying to be. And it will require the constant waging of war against materialism, just like it does for the elder and just like it does for you and I. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, which encroach on every single thing that we do. And we have to be aware that that's the issue. And for every believer, this is the example of godliness that has to be manifest in this person who first caught the attention of the church because they were selfless servants. But these have to be true too if you're going to serve in this office. You want to honestly answer the question, do they love money? And you want to answer it with no, not yes. Now look at verse 9. And again, this is going to have to do with spiritual life. This is one of my favorites here, and I just love this, the way this is worded. It talks about a deacon. It says, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Those words are so full. That is just so great. And not comes before the last three, and then we get to this one, and but comes here. Instead of those things, this. And holding to present active participle, ekontas, it's a verb. It's to possess something to the point of wearing it. It's the putting on of something. And as a participle, this is the ongoing attire, it will be, of life. And so, what is the deacon to hold as a matter of a qualification? This is a qualification to serve. He has to hold the mystery of the faith. He has to put that on. What does that mean? Well, simply, the great truths of the faith are not to be held as theological abstracts that they can just lift off. It's not that they can know the doctrines. That's not the issue. They certainly should know them, but they have to be wearing them, see? It can't just be a knowledge of those things that are spiritual. They are to be, as a qualification, the way of life for the leader. And we looked at this before, so you know that a mystery in the New Testament is something that was hidden, but's now revealed. So this is the New Testament revelation. That which was hidden in the past generations before the coming of Christ, and it's the story of redemption and how God made it clear in the New Testament. And it starts with Jesus' early teaching with the parables like the sower and the seed. And I'm going to look at this one just briefly. It's, it's my favorite, but it, it, I think it, it, it illustrates the point really clearly that, that the deacon has to have this on. Listen to the words. He spe begins to speak, and he's talking about the kingdom, and he's talking about how it comes, and he says this, and he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them. 
Others fell in the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, pause right there. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think that this is an important thing to know if you're going to serve as a deacon? Now, here's the thing about this parable. First of all, it doesn't say anything about how he's sowing, okay? It just says he is sowing. It doesn't matter if you're using Way of the Master or Romans Road or whatever it is that you've memorized, but you're about, you're about to be sowing. You're sowing the gospel out. What does it have everything to talk about? The soil. It talks about the soil. Where does the seed fall? Do you think it's important that we would know the difference between someone who's a believer and someone who's not? And what was the main difference, the significant thing where it fell on the good soil, what was it that it produced? Fruit. Now, let me ask you something. Is it possible to tell whether someone's a believer or not? You're going to have to answer yes, because it's impossible to do the work of the ministry if you can't even determine whether someone's a believer or not. And how do you know if they're a believer? You say, well, that's kind of judgy. I have my own relationship to Jesus. Really? Well, if you have your own relationship to Jesus, it's not private because it has to come under the requirements of, of submitting and, and uh, repenting before the Lord, and you're going to come to faith. And then you're going to produce fruit. And it may be a lot of fruit or a medium amount of fruit or a small amount, but in there is going to be fruit. So do you think this mystery that was hidden before the foundation of the world all the way through the Old Testament, but now in the New Testament is revealed is important for a deacon to know? I would say it's imperative for them to know. Not only just know it factually like they can recite this parable, but to know it actually as being able to discern whether somebody's a believer or not. Are they a candidate for the gospel? And what's going on in their life? Are they being choked out with the things of the world? Is it no root because they weren't discipled and they didn't understand? Or they didn't understand at all? The birds came and picked it up. Which one is it? And so this is very, very simple. But I think you can understand this is what we're talking about here. And the disciples had the same trouble when they first heard it. Like, what does that even mean? And so he says, okay, let me tell you what it means. Hear then the parable of the soil, of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and he does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom the seed was sown beside the road. The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself. It's only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom the seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom the seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word, understands it, and who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Now, mystery of the faith is part of that. How does the gospel move? The mystery of the faith is, it's like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of seeds, but when planted, grows up and the birds can rest in its branches. The mystery of the gospel is a treasure in a field that a man goes and spends everything he has to buy. The mystery of the gospel is, it's yeast in a, a, a ball of dough, which works its way all the way out through. 
That's the mystery of the gospel. Do you think it's important that we know that? Of course it is. Is that a mystery before and now made clear? Yes. It's part of what a deacon has to know. The mystery of the faith, every time that's referred to, it's what it means to be a believer. How that works out in the life of the person. It encompasses the mystery of the incarnation of Christ, the mystery of the indwelling Christ, of the Jew and the Gentile, one in Christ, and the saving gospel, the sanctification of a believer, the mystery of the rapture of the church. All those things are part of a mystery now revealed. The deacon has to be one who just doesn't know those facts. He has to wear those facts. He has to have them as part of the very fabric of his life. And then this part, which we've implied already, he has all that with a clear conscience. What does that mean? That is to live, to hold close as wearing something in such a way that the rightly informed conscience will have no grounds to condemn. It's to understand it, it's to put it on, and then because the conscience is rightly informed, there's no condemnation going on of any length. The deacon has to know the revealed truth and live it. And sound doctrine is very important to Paul. He takes a lot of care with it. All the way through this letter, he makes a major point out of sound doctrine and good teaching. Why is that? Well, we saw this in chapter 1. We'll see it again in chapter 4. Why is it important? It's because it informs the conscience. I encourage you every single time we're together, nearly, to take the word and each day spend time in it. Why? Because it's going to inform your conscience. You're going to learn doctrine. You're going to learn how the Lord deals with you, the promises of the Lord. It's going to inform your conscience continually over and over again so that that conscience then is telling you the right thing, see? In 1 Timothy chapter 4, he gives Timothy a list of doctrinal things that need to be taught to the church. And then he says this, in pointing out these things to the brethren, you'll be a good, and then there's our word, servant of Jesus Christ constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of sound doctrine, which you have been following. So you're following this, you've put it on, and now you're making sure they understand it so they can put it on and have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. How do you end up putting that stuff on? How do you take it from just mental knowledge to actually living that way? It's disciplining yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only a little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds a promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Begin living according to sound doctrine. Reign your life in, Paul says, in the same way you train your body by discipline, train your heart. And listen, beloved, and I've said this over and over again. I wonder what would happen if we spent as much time in the Word of God as we spend in the gym. And that's only for little purpose. I mean, it's important we understand that for us to be healthy. We're going to have to do some of these things. But imagine the discipline that it takes. And we all know how that ta- what it takes to get your body in a position where you can be competitive in whatever sport you want to be. It takes a lot of discipline to do that. And if you don't do it, you won't be successful. But precisely in the same understanding is what Paul tells Timothy to tell those faithful men around him, in the same way you discipline your body, which has very little benefit over the long haul, discipline your mind for godliness. Train your heart. And training the heart and the conscience for godliness is profitable for all things that matter, both now and in the future. And so the deacon is to have a conscience that's not accusing them, a correctly informed conscience. 
That's not bringing guilt on them. Why? Because you're holding the truth and you're obeying the truth. And because the better your understanding of doctrine, the stronger your conscience will be. And the more you apply yourself to the understanding of the Bible, and the stronger your faith is going to believe and it's going to be, the stronger will be your conscience. You see, this is how that works. The more you apply yourself to that understanding, the stronger your conscience is going to be. And when a person who has a strong grasp of doctrine and a clear understanding of theology and holds the mystery of the faith with great strength, when that person violates that doctrine, they have a very strong conscience reprimanding them. See? And that's what you want. And beloved, as you grow up sons, that's what you want with them too. You can say all you can say to them, and you're going to spend a lot of time talking with them and counseling with them and chasing them, and then you want them in the Word every day. Why? Because the Lord is going to inform their conscience, and they've got a Holy Spirit restrainer if they've come to faith, and they're going to learn how to walk with Him apart from you because you're not always going to be there to say, better not do that. You won't be their conscience anymore. It's going to be the Holy Spirit informing, and you're going to form that little person up, and you're going to spank them when they need to be spanked and reward them when they need to be rewarded, and they'll get to the point where they come to faith in Christ and repent, and then they have that Holy Spirit restrainer and then they've got a habit of being in the Word because that was pleasing to you when they were young and now they have an informed conscience and now they don't need you to be that conscience anymore. And now whatever the Lord takes them and whatever life throws at them, they're going to have that well-informed conscience to say, don't do this or do this. And that's what you want. And that's what everybody is supposed to be like. And does the Lord want any less of His people than He wants of those who lead the church? And the answer has got to be no. Because we've seen it over and over again. It was always Paul's goal, 2 Corinthians 1.12, our proud confidence is this, he says, the testimony of our conscience. Here's my proud testimony. Not everything I've accomplished, not all the churches I've planted. Here's my proud confidence. The testimony of our conscience that in holiness and godly sincerity and not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially towards you. In the process of his ministry, his conscience was not accusing him because it was correctly informed and he was living according to those things. And if this is the example that those who serve as deacons must meet, guess what that means for you? Do you think the Lord wants anything less for His church than to His 1 Peter 3.15 tells everyone, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence, here it is, mark it, and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. What's the ultimate goal as you walk your way through your life? That's not just leaders, is it now? That's everybody. Is to live in such a way you set the Lord aside as holy in your own heart. He's the one you want to follow. So you're going to know then His Word. You're going to be able to make a defense for people who ask you to give an account of the hope that's in you. And that's going to keep a good conscience so that no matter what people slander you about, your conscience has not been violated. You're walking with an informed conscience in such a way that it's a good example and someday they'll all become to shame. Because if you don't know the gospel, if you're unsure of doctrine, then your conscience is not going to be informed correctly and you'll vacillate back and forth and you may not be aware that you're violating God's word. And beloved, that happens all the time in the church. I can't even tell you how many times I've gone up to someone gently on the side and said, listen, you know, this, this is not where the Lord wants you. And it's obviously disobeying a direct command from the Lord. And their response many times is this, many times. I really feel this is what I need to be doing. 
I feel this is what the Lord wants for me. I said, I know you've heard this. It's obviously in opposition to everything the Lord really wants from them. But they think that's what the Lord wants from them. And that's what they'll say. What's the problem? They never learn what the Lord really wants, so their conscience is not informing them correctly. It's confirming that it's perfectly fine to want what you want. It's very hard for them now to discern the difference. And so it's very, very important, and we're out of time, so I want to stop. But by God's grace and a commitment to know His powerful Word, every day you're in it. Along with confession of sin, we can know that a pure conscience will be informing us correctly. And so a deacon in the church is going to have to be tested in these ways, by personal character and by spiritual life. And we're going to see that in verse 10 next time, Lord willing, that he'll be tested over time in those things before he can be put in the office. All right, let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. Be my joy to pray together with you as we close our time out. Lord, we thank you today for your time in the word. We thank you for the fellowship of the saints over your word. We were created for this. For every word that proceeds out of your mouth, we were created for it. It resonates with us more so when we're done than perhaps it did when we started, much like prayer. When we come to prayer and we don't feel this intense desire to do it, and yet we get into it and begin to pray, and when we close out, we're much more intense about it and much more desirous to do it again than we were when we started. That's how your word is too. So condition our hearts to be in it each day, Father, that we'll make it a habit to set aside time that we might know what your word says so we can inform our conscience correctly. We can throw down those high places that have raised themselves up against the knowledge of Christ and in in their place put these very firm foundations that we can stand on that will inform us correctly, take us through life. And thank you, Father, too, for an opportunity to pray. We we recognize that um, we have this boldness because of what Christ has accomplished on the cross. We can come boldly before your throne. And so, Father, we remember that you've told us to pray for all men everywhere, for kings and all in authority. And so, Father, we pray far out from us. We think about those who lead nations. We think about those who are leaders and those who are uh, over certain things in countries and, and communities, that your word might be powerful, that those who know them and who know you will begin to do the witnessing they need to do, carrying out the Great Commission, that your church then may be free to bring the gospel in power to those who are around them that you may allow pastors and other places uh, with, to be free from, uh, it says that we pray for that so they can live in tranquility and peace. Or we pray that they'll be free from that burden of being constantly persecuted. They might be able to, again, bring the gospel in power, empower your church, empower this church to do that very thing. And Father, we think about, of course, those things that are close to us. We think about uh, some of our beloved who are not with us because they're uh, they're struggling with health things, and children who are struggling. Father, we pray for grace for them. We certainly are not ignoring those things close to us. We wish for, we wish for healing and your will to be done there and for, and for good testimony and for you to encourage them. But Lord, we want to be remembering those things that are far from us that uh, are part of your will to pray for. It's not your will any perish, but all come to the knowledge of salvation. And you've given us a process by which that's going to happen. As we give out the word and we pray, those things can be impacted in a powerful way that the church may dwell in all sincerity, that we're not in offense to anyone because of things we allow in our life that are detrimental to our testimony, but instead, the only offense would be the cross, the stumbling block of the cross. And in that respect, everyone has to fall. So, Father, help us to be bold. Thank you for these things that we see. Help us to understand that you don't want any less for your church than you want for those who lead the church. And so, Father, help us to conform in those areas that your Holy Spirit has brought to our mind. And we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus.
and for his sake. And all God's people said, Amen.